Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, or on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Congresswoman Barbara Lee about a bill she has introduced into the House calling for a creation, the creation of a Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Now, hear that again. The creation of a Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Commission. Congresswoman Barbara Lee is a forceful and progressive voice in our Congress, dedicated to social and economic justice, international peace, and civil and human rights. First elected in 1998 to represent California's 9th Congressional District, the Democratic lawmaker has a reputation for principled and independent stands, unafraid to take on the tough issues and speak her mind, speak her mind and heart for her constituents. For more, let me start again, to take on the tough issues and speak her mind and heart for her constituents, and for a more just America, for a safer world. Her accomplishments include leading on major legislation dealing with global HIV AIDS issues and post 9-11, casting the lone vote against a resolution that gave the president virtually unlimited authority to use force for an unlimited period of time. That means the lone vote against the war in Iraq. She has consistently fought to stop endless wars and to reduce conditions that produce conflict and injustice. As a member of the House Democratic leadership, she is the highest ranking African-American woman in the U.S. Congress. Now, in speaking just last week to a class of students, she was asked, how do you find the strength and the courage to keep speaking up and voting the way you do, even when you're often the only one doing it. Congresswoman Barbara Lee said, because I'm an African-American woman and a person of faith. Barbara, you didn't know I heard that, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, dear sister, for joining us today. Thank you, Reverend Wallace. I'm really um, happy to be with you, Uh, always with you. I'm settled (laughs) and I really appreciate um, your mentorship, your prayers, your friendship, but also your activism on so many issues. I mean, you brought to me and to members of Congress uh, the way to frame a budget as a moral document. And we still um, are fighting that good fight to have this um, budget to reflect a a moral document because that's what it is. So we, we wouldn't have done that had it not been for you and for your leadership. So thank you so much. Well, you always bring that moral reflection into our lawmaking, which is so important. Let me start by just asking you, Congresswoman, how is your spirit these days? How's your spirit? 
Okay, Reverend Wallace, now I have to go to 2 Timothy, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's how my spirit is. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Good way. We, you know, it, it, it's okay to be afraid of things worth being afraid of, but the spirit of fear isn't that the problem in our politics today? That is the problem. And uh, January 6th <laughs> reminded me of that again. And I was sitting on the House floor when the white supremacist or domestic terrorists uh, attempted this coup d'etat. And this was the scripture I thought of uh, because I knew we were in danger. And that um, there are those in this country who fear people who look like me and who fear the other. And so I had to draw on my faith and on this spirit that uh, allowed me to uh, understand we were in immense danger, but that I, you know, have love and I better use my mind <laughs> and pray, <laughs> pray if we were going to get out of it. <laughs> well, bless you for that. So what I often like so much about what you bring to the house and to our lawmaking is how you often go underneath the particular details of the bill under consideration. And you wanna undergird our public policy with that kind of moral depth and reflection. So the purpose of the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission as stated in the bill you proposed is to this, quote, to properly acknowledge, memorialize, and be a catalyst for progress toward jettison, the belief in the hierarchy of human value, jettisoning that, embracing our common humanity, and permanently eliminating persistent racial inequality. So say more about how we practically acknowledge and memorialize our history, and especially the harm done through chattel slavery and its many mutations since. Sure, Reverend Wallace, and I have to uh, reference what you wrote. I believe it was a letter to the editor or an op-ed. There's no um, healing or reconciliation without the truth. And I introduced um, the commission to establish uh, a truth. Well, I introduced legislation to establish Truth, Racial Healing, Transformation Commission because one is America has never had this truth-telling moment as it relates to the history, the historical context for systemic racism. Over 40 countries have established these types of commissions. Some are called Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. We're calling it a transformation because there's really nothing to reconcile in America. And so when you look at um, the last 401 years when the first enslaved Africans were brought to America, uh, lasted slavery lasted 250 some years. Then we had a whole series of, of policies that continued to really enslave African-Americans. Uh, you look at Jim Crow, you look at the black codes, you look at mass incarceration, you look at uh, the, the segregation of housing and schools. When you look at the systems that were established after slavery, really these chains of slavery have not all been broken. The public really does not understand, and I learned this right after Mr. Floyd was so brutally killed in front of uh, the world, how police misconduct, brutality, and the murder of black men and women uh, can be allowed in a country such as America. My progressive
constituents couldn't figure that out. And I had to explain to them how systemic racism is directly connected to the enslavement of Africans. When people saw the COVID, the disproportionate rates of COVID-19 as it relates to African-American men and women, I had to explain, and these were good conscious people, I uh, had to explain how the health disparities and what they're seeing in black and brown people dying with the virus disproportionately had direct relationships to the historical context of enslavement, the enslavement of Africans. And so we have to finally bring forth the truth in this country. We need this commission, like other countries have put forth, actually the US Institute of Peace, which we fund, provides technical assistance for these commissions to be established in other countries. We've never had that. And so we have to have this moment, this day of reckoning in America. And this is not about personal responsibilities for the enslavement of Africans. This is about our system of government. The United States of America had a, a legal system that enslaved Africans, which through the ages, through the generations now are manifested in so many ways that are so uh, deadly and will never get to the healing phase of, of this democracy until we tell the truth and the public has to understand this. And so this commission will allow for the public to understand and to learn and to figure out why we need to heal and how to heal. And then we move forward to the transformation, which is repairing the damage. And it has to do with reparations. And we cannot ignore the fact that the damage has been done through generations, which require us to look at how we address reparations. So this is what I mean by how you get underneath things to the root causes. So let's unpack those two words. First of all, uh, the first word in the commission's title is truth, truth. At a recent gathering of faith leaders, you spoke to us and you explained the reasoning for introducing the truth, racial healing and transformation commission saying, we haven't dealt with the underlying issues of the historical context of the Middle Passage. We need to have people come together to understand why George Floyd was killed by the police, why there is a disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on people of color. So share more about how truth, truth is the foundation of this bill that is becoming a movement and perhaps remind us why Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's the point, Reverend Wallace. That, that is, is the point. point. The, the, uh, okay, the fact that uh, we've never had this truth-telling moment in America speaks volumes as to why we still have the huge uh, gaps based on race. It speaks volumes as to why systemic racism is still uh, with us. And so the, the truth, you, you have to tell the truth, you have to come to grips with the fact that a, a, an entire race of people through the generations have been not afforded equality and justice. And you have to tell the truth because you hear now so many people talking about healing. Well, we can't jump from the oppression and the enslavement and the uh, racist and structural discrimination that is embedded in the DNA of our country and move toward healing. There's just no way you do that. <laughs> and that's not the process to get to healing. 
because if that happens, 100 years from now, we'll still talk, be talking about the same thing. So I think people w want to know, and I, I have a lot of faith in the public, in the American people. I believe, aside from those that we, we know who want to destroy anyone who looks other than, you know, who are white supremacists, quite frankly, I think the American people would welcome the ability to learn and to understand and then to take a deep breath and say, okay, now we can move on and now we can talk about healing, but we can't get to that healing and we've got to get there. We've got to get there in our lifetime if we're going to move forward and have racial justice as part of the country's DNA instead of racial injustice. I agree with that, especially for a new generation coming up who, I, who want to know the truth to act on it. Like uh, if Jesus said, uh, which we just quoted him as saying that the truth will make you free. The opposite's also true, that if we don't know the truth, we're still in bondage and we'll stay in bondage, all of us, because we haven't acknowledged the truth. And it's knowing that that can really set us free. Uh, in There is another bill, H.R. 40, that would create a commission for, you mentioned the word reparations for Black Americans. So how does the TRHT Commission connect with the movement for reparations? And perhaps what's a deeper understanding of, of repairing? <laughs> repairing, as you know, Isaiah the prophet talks about, and making reparations for deep historical injustice. How do you repair what has been done after we acknowledge that that's the truth? Sure, sure. We actually, uh, in our legislation, have HR 40 as the transformational aspect of this. Uh, repairing the damage is so important because when you look at, and I'll use, uh, for example, generational wealth. When you look at the fact that the wealth gap is huge as it relates to the African-American community, why is that? We were denied access to capital. We couldn't purchase our homes. In California, the Fair Housing Act didn't pass until what, 1964, 65. My family, uh, it, my dad was in the military, wanted to buy a house in San Leandro, California, next to Oakland. They were burning crosses then. And my mother and dad said, no, but we were gonna live in San Leandro. I'm gonna put on my uniform and we're going out there. They ran him out of town, even in his uniform. But side note today, I, I uh, represent San Leandro, California, but, let me just say, we don't, we're not able to, because of systemic racism, to acquire wealth and equity in our homes to be able to pass down to our children and grandchildren. So what happens? You have that huge gap there. Uh, when you look at Social Security, when you look at the veterans' uh, benefits, when you look at all of the benefits that whites have been afforded in this country, Black people couldn't, until very recently, we were barred from any of the benefits of this country. We were legally uh, shut out. I, I couldn't go to public schools <laughs> because they were segregated uh, in El Paso, Texas. Uh, there's so many uh, ways and barriers that uh, have kept black people, especially uh, as I, I would say so uh, marginalized until you, we have to catch up. You, you can't have equity and justice starting from an unbalanced playing field. You have to have a level playing field. So to get to be able to get to that level playing field, 
with such huge inequities for the last 401 years, you've got to do something to repair the damage so you can catch up uh, to where we should be in terms of achieving the beloved community, which I hope our constitution um, people still build, believe in liberty and justice for all. And so that's why we have to repair the damage. Otherwise, we'll never catch up. And uh, that's because of, of the chains, all of the chains of slavery have not been broken. Well, just to confirm that and to do a sharp contrast to your family in California, my white family in Detroit, when my father came back from World War II, uh, like the veterans who were like him, he got a GI Bill for free education, and then he got an FHA loan for our first house as a family. And when you get education and a house, you're middle class. So my government made my family middle class because GIs like my dad got that. But he was a naval officer out in the Pacific. And none of the black sailors on his ship, no black GIs got an FHA loan and the GI Bill. In Detroit, that wasn't possible because of the D Detroit redlining, which still goes on, and how Jim Crow in the South made it impossible. So what my dad and GIs that looked like him got uh, was something that black GIs in World War II didn't get. So right there, this wealth gap, this wealth gap is so tied to owning, to home ownership and family in income. So the contrast in how people were treated needs to be repaired. We can't just say it was wrong. Most people don't even know that that fact I just gave about what happened after World War II to white GIs and black GIs, but that that's a fact. Now, how do we repair that becomes critical. Yes, and Remois, my dad was in the 92nd Infantry in Italy during World War II supporting the Normandy invasion. And he could not get an FHA loan. He could not access veterans benefits. I mean, and so you have over, you have so many, I mean, the entire, uh, an entire generation, not so distant from our past, uh, was denied access to the benefits of this country and what it affords. And so again, uh, when you look at educational inequities, uh, when you look again, housing, the wealth gap, when you look at, uh, for instance, uh, climate change and environmental injustice. Again, I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas and in a neighborhood where the corporations uh, put uh, smelters and the toxic pollutants from the uh, these uh, smelters caused serious, I mean, serious illnesses. My grandfather had serious lung problems. My mother died of CP COPD. Most of my neighborhood friends have passed away at a very early age. And it was because of the racism and how these corporations cited those smelters. And so, you know, so there's no way, you know, when you talk about the healthcare system and you see now with COVID and you see the structural racism that has been embedded uh, in our healthcare system, the Tuskegee experiments, uh, using um, African-American women and men for experimental surgeries and, and just the whole nine yards. There's a lot of damage that has to be repaired uh, structurally because these uh, procedures, processes and policies are still within the systems here in America. 
When you talk about the toxicity, I'm reminded of how the United Church of Christ many years ago did two maps. They did a map of all the toxic waste dumps in America, all the places where, as you say, uh, our toxicity was, was dumped. Then you put that map uh, right up against the map of where low-income uh, minority families lived, and the maps are identical. They're just, they fit on top of each other. And so here again, a new generation, and I, I hear my boys talk all the time, a new generation is recognizing these truths. And I, like you think, they're gonna demand that they be addressed. So you can't tell the truth and not act on it. You've gotta repair damage that the truth now reveals. So, so what can our listeners do uh, who hear you and and are convinced by this to support uh, the passage of this important bill. What can churches do together to support this effort? How do we create the truthful narrative that could change both our conversations, help pass a bill, and see concrete action as a result of both the national and local levels? Sure, thank you, Reverend Wiles. It's so important that people of faith, churches, members of the clergy get their members of Congress to just say, okay, I want to co-sponsor HR 19 and HR 40. Just, you know, because we've got to have a hearing. We're at probably about a hundred, a little over a hundred. We got to 169 last Congress and we're over a hundred now, but we're trying to get to 200. So call your members of Congress and ask them to co-sponsor these two efforts. Why the faith community? Look, First of all, the truth about it, and we've talked about this, Reverend Wiles, the truth about it is slavery was justified using the Bible to justify its existence. I've been to Ghana many times, and you go into the slave castles, the slave dungeons, and you go to the chapels where the Dutch prayed, right in the midst of enslaving Africans, killing Africans, raping women. Uh, just, it's a terrible, terrible uh, institution that was developed with the church, with Christians. And so, you know, the church has got to talk about this and, and talk about how complicit it was. And a lot of church people don't even know that, but you go all over uh, Africa and you see on, on the West Coast, you'll see chapels and churches and Christian symbols uh, acknowledging Christ right next to a slave dungeon. And so that's another part of why the faith community has got to be involved in this because it's, it's, it's this day of reckoning has to come. And again, it's the truth. <laughs> We're not talking about manufacturing any facts. This is the truth. And I hope that uh, people will help us by signing on to these bills and by helping with the movement, helping to teach people in your local communities what the truth is about the enslavement of, of African-Americans. Tell the truth and form small commission. You can do this locally around the country. Uh, Dr. Christensen through the Kellogg Foundation has enacted many small truth commissions locally because of course, when mine is established, we wanna support local efforts. So you don't have to wait until the commission's in place. Get started now and, and start this dialogue in the community, but don't, don't have it where we're trying to figure out and learn more about African-Americans and you know, just get to know you all. Talk about the deep issues that we're faced with and, and start dealing with it from the basis of the truth. You know, uh, this commission that you are putting together is coalitions around this 
movement is the right word. This is becoming a movement all over the country. And really, it's an idea to quote Victor Hugo, whose time has come, this idea of truth, uh, that the reconciliation needs the truth, <laughs> truth, uh, racial transformation. Uh, so how at the local level do you envision people actually doing this, really taking this idea and putting it into action, even at their local levels? Sure. And right now, there are two things. One is uh, get your local city councils and local uh, local governmental units to take past resolutions supporting HR 19 and HR 40. Just demand that they do that. But in the meantime, have a cult activist, academicians, the faith community, people who've been affected by discrimination, mass incarceration, formerly incarcerated individuals, get people together and, and develop your own framework, however you think is the most appropriate way, town meetings, FaceTime live, but be uh, vigilant and determined that it's not going to be the same old just race discussion. Have some action items, have the truth telling moments where you dig deep uh, and learn from each other and it's going to be difficult. It's really hard. <laughs> I've been through a lot of these because people are going to say, well, why not me? And we, our families weren't responsible or I wasn't responsible. And so have people there who can provide the framework for this. And that is, this was a legal system of government that enslaved people. We're not talking about your great grandfather. We're talking about your government that you pay taxes to. So you have to have someone who could drill down about the historical context. And then you have to have a good facilitator, uh, a faith leader maybe, or whomever you think your community would be, uh, who would be respected in your community to go through the healing process. And this could take some mental health professionals uh, because again, it, it's, it's a deep, deep kind of process you go through. But remember the goal is, okay, you go through this process and then at the local level, you'll, you'll see the injustices. It will be right in front of you. You'll see how uh, the disproportionate rates of, of black kids uh, don't have enough to eat. Or you'll be able to begin to see how mass incarceration has, has destroyed so many African-American families. Why is that? Because our laws are unjust. And how did they become unjust? They started way back during slavery. So you'll begin to see how this is manifested in your local community because you, your eyes will be open. You will be free to, to, to see it right in front of you. But you've got to go through this process. And I would urge you uh, to do that. And we have people who can give you the framework, Dr. Christensen and others who have done this in communities and be willing to kind of encourage you and, and urge you to look at what works and what doesn't work. But I think it's absolutely essential that uh, we get started on this. You know, when people raise those questions that you've heard saying, well, I wasn't to blame, uh, I wasn't there, or my people weren't even here yet, uh, when, but I wasn't to blame is always the question. My, my best response to that is, uh, well, maybe you weren't to blame for all of this, but you know, when you benefit from oppression, when That's we right. benefit from oppression, we are responsible to change it. We are responsible to change it if we have benefited from this. Um, I had the opportunity to be involved in the truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa under the leadership of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who really was that faith leader 
that facilitator, you say, that is often necessary and supported by Nelson Mandela after the apartheid regime came to a political end. And as you just said before, 40 other countries have now used this language of truth and reconciliation or some version of that to address their own context. So what can we learn from South Africa or those many other places about how indeed we can do this? Sure, Reverend Austin. Some have been more uh, productive and more effective and successful than others. I think South Africa, it's a mixed bag. I think it was very successful in many respects, but I don't believe the transformation or the reconciliation was led to transformation in the sense that, that uh, the economic benefits and the, um, the closing of the gaps, uh, are, that's still going on. And so I think that we have to have um, the reparations portion in this commission. Uh, I think Rwanda uh, established one, and I think it's important to look at all of the commissions and what worked and what didn't work. And that's what I'm doing through the Institute of Peace, because we can see we have to craft our own here in the United States. But the ones abroad, again, over 40 of them, uh, and we can get you the information from the Library of Congress. They did a great analysis. Uh, they were done within the context of either uh, apartheid or the or genocides, crimes against humanity. We're doing it in the context of enslavement of for over 250 years of Africans. And so it, it just depends on the context, but some have been very successful, others um, mixed bag. But I think one of the key components is the repair and the damage that has probably been the most difficult of all of the commissions to enact. So you're always a visionary political leader uh, who calls us to do more than pass bills and enact legislation. Uh, so we're going to do what you asked us to do, uh, reach out to our members of Congress, to our mayors, to our uh, governors, to our local officials. But describe what, if we do this, if we can pass this and really get this process moving, as a visionary political leader, describe for us what you envision when this commission is fully enacted. Um, how would our communities be changed by ongoing, ongoing truth, racial healing and transformation? Well, the country, well, the commission, of course, we haven't filled in the blanks. We're working with the Biden-Harris administration now to see the, you know, the appointing authorities who would be on the commission once we get it established and getting them to buy into it, which, you know, in the Democratic Party platform, I have to say we were able to get support from the Biden-Harris Commission. And so I think once the commission would be formed, then you'd have this big uh, moment where we have testimony, people coming forward with the truth, developing the body of knowledge and the historical uh, background for systemic racism. And in fact, it would educate. And what we want to do is make sure the public is educated. And so hopefully we'd have local communities engaged right then and there to, to be that local effort to educate their local communities. And the federal government, the federal commission would provide support for this because the federal commission, our commission would be the framework but it's going to be at local community level that, that this thing is going to take place. And what we want to see, and I think this is the goal, is to see some real change, transformation, 
where we'll say disrupting the prison, the school to prison pipeline, that's a must. So what do we do about that? We have to do X, Y, and Z. It's a must that we provide access to home ownership. I mean, in a bold way, not tinkering around the edges. What do we need to do? Uh, it's, it's essential that we have a universal health care for everyone. <laughs> I mean, everyone that they can afford because healthcare is a human right. So how do we develop a system of healthcare where we get buy-in? And so it's so important because it's gonna be a political fight, but that's why we have to have the, the public day of reckoning, the public body to bring this forward so we can have buy-in from the public so they understand that they're living in a country right now that's not living up to its creed of liberty and justice for all. Well, thank you for your vision once again. Uh, Barbara Lee, thank you for joining us and thank you for leading us into something that could really transform us at a very deep level by acknowledging the truth and letting it, helping it set us free. So thank you for joining us again today. Thank you, Reverend Wells. I'm so happy to be with you. And I want to thank you for your voice and for your ability to connect with so many people who will believe you if they don't believe me. <laughs> so thanks again. Well, we're going to be a tag team on this one for sure. Yeah. Uh, to hear more from Congresswoman Barbara Lee, follow her on Twitter at Rep Barbara Lee, at Rep Barbara Lee, and find more information on the commission at USTRHT. Org. I'll say it again, on the commission at USTRHT.org. And let me just say that Sojourners is helping lead a faith outreach task force and will be engaged in the ecumenical faith community, interfaith faith community, to call on the Biden-Harris administration to establish a truth, racial healing, and transformation commission. Our nation is facing a deep wound due to the legacy of racism, racist practices and policies and dehumanization dating back to 1619. For far too long, this legacy has marginalized people made in the image and likeness of God. This is for us, not just a political issue, but a theological issue that we will never be healed if we do not intentionally work towards healing and people of faith are essential in that process that leads to lasting change. So anyone who's interested in becoming more involved, and I hope many of you are willing to do that, can contact Reverend Terrence McKinley, Reverend Terrence McKinley, Director of Racial Justice and Mobilizing at Sojourners at T McKinley, T-M-C-K-I-N-L-E-Y, at sojo.net, T McKinley at sojo.net. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter, if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you. Blessings on all of us for the soul of this nation.